um, which according to the church calendar of centuries past, uh, is basically the New Year's Day of the church calendar. Um, And so, Happy New Year, belated, uh, of the church calendar. And the church calendar is actually really cool. I'm kind of coming to to learn. Um, It's been observed for, like I said, centuries by many uh, Christian traditions, Orthodox, uh, Catholic, uh, and even Protestant traditions. Um, But Advent always starts the church calendar year, and then it runs into Christmas Eve. And then on Christmas Day starts Christmas Tide, which is where we get the 12 days of Christmas. It's actually a 12-day celebration of the Feast of the Nativity. And then that culminates in Epiphany, which this year is January, or I guess next year, but this church calendar year is January 6th, which also celebrates the, fe- or the um, visitation of the Magi to Jesus. Um, and then in some circles, they celebrate Jesus' baptism on Epiphany. And then goes right into Lent, which usually starts roughly February, uh, early March, and then goes into Holy Week and then Easter and Eastertide, which is another however long celebration, and then into Ordinary Time, which is six months. So basically there's there's six months of the church calendar that is um, observing, recognizing, acknowledging, celebrating the person and the work of Jesus Christ his birth, his life, and then his passion week and his death and his resurrection. So that's six months of the church calendar year. And then it goes into what's called ordinary time, which is basically another way of saying, all right, now that we've kind of observed those things and, and, and what Jesus did for us, let's, let's put it into our daily lives. Let's, let's just live as if it were true. And so that's, there's six months of really specific celebrations, and then there's six months of, all right, let's put this into practice. And the reason why I kind of go through all that is because I think as a church, we'll start kind of observing those, those things over the next few years, um, and it'll be a, an interesting and, and fun thing to get going as a church. But Advent, Advent starts it, and that's what we're going to be in for the next four weeks. And Advent If you've never heard the term or if you've heard it and not known what it means, it's a Latin word that means coming or visit. And it's during the season of Advent leading up to Christmas that we basically reenact the preparation, the the anticipation. You know, and we have the benefit of having, we look back on Jesus having already come. But there were centuries of the people of God waiting with bated breath, with kind of not knowing what this Messiah was going to look like, be like, uh, and accomplish. And so we basically reenact that waiting, that longing. And then we also, we also acknowledge that we're not just reenacting and, and uh, you know, preparing ourselves kind of as a looking back, but also acknowledging that We're also looking forward and anticipating our own advent of Jesus, his second advent or visit or coming. And so we're in this state where we get to look back on his first and anticipate his second. And so that's basically the purpose of advent is to really settle in, you know, and to to really acknowledge that we're in a state of longing still. 
So, and there are many ways to observe Advent. You've, at growing up, you've, if you didn't grow up in sort of a liturgical tradition, um, maybe your only exposure to Advent was seeing the chocolate calendars in the aisle at the grocery store. Um, you know, we loved those as kids. Um, or even, you might have done the Advent candles during Advent dinners, or maybe you grew up in a liturgical tradition where, yeah, Advent's a big deal. So, yeah. Um, but there are many ways to observe it. And so for us, we will be taking the next four weeks and include Christmas Day to explore the four themes of Advent. And those are hope, peace, joy, and love. So today we're going to explore the hope of Jesus' first coming, as well as the hope of his second. And then, so we're, we're not just looking at those four themes, but we're going to look at each of those four themes through four lenses. And these lenses are, are the lens of longing and then of promise. So we don't just have a longing for hope. God has provided a promise of hope. And then thirdly, uh, the lens of fulfillment, that God hasn't just provided promises, but he has fulfilled those promises. And if he has promises that have yet to be fulfilled, we can look at the ones he already has fulfilled and know that he will fulfill those ones that aren't yet fulfilled. And then lastly, the lens of worship. So we're going to go from longing to promise, and then from fulfillment to worship. So we kind of got, we got, we got things to do this morning, and we're going to jump all over Scripture to do it. Um, so we're going to start with hope, and on the, on sort of the semantic spectrum between wish and solid expectation, you know, the Bible declares hope to be a lot closer to expectation then a lot of us, you know, when we think of the word hope, or when, even when we say the word hope, you know, I hope it, do- I hope it doesn't snow tonight, or I hope it does, um, we, we tend to think of it as more like a wish. You know, it, but biblical hope is a lot closer to a solid reality. And it's not like my daughter Thea hoping that unicorns are real. And that she'll get one for Christmas. You know, she hopes that. And that's not the hope we're talking about. You know, we're talking about my hope, say that my daughter Thea will eventually be a full-fledged, well-adjusted adult. Yeah. You know, I, I can't tell you that's going to happen for sure. But I hope that. You know, I have a I have pretty good reason and expectation that that will happen. You know, despite all my <laughs> failures and flaws as a father, that is my hope. I have that expectation. So, of the four themes of Advent, you know, hope, peace, joy, and love, hope is the only one that won't last forever. Have you ever thought of that? You know, we, we hope for things, and as Christians, we have a, we'll find out in a minute, a living hope. But it won't last forever. You know why? Because when Jesus comes our hope will be fulfilled. And there won't be any need for hope anymore. And, and yet, peace, joy, and love, oh, those will last forever. But hope is really what sustains during a season of longing, during a season of waiting, during a season of, of, of like we're in now. 
of Advent. And so when that day comes, when Jesus returns and resurrects our probably at that point dead bodies and gives us a new immortal body like his, you know, when he wipes away every tear from our eye and removes all the pain, hope will disappear because he has appeared, right? Our hope is future-oriented, but it will be fulfilled. But that day has not dawned yet. And so, hope sure is needed. And it's needed in a big way uh, right now. And when you're in a dark season of life, um, a little bit of hope goes a long way. And one image of hope that I think is really striking is, is that of light. You know, hope can be sort of a beacon of light that dispels darkness. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little story. Um, when uh, Anna was pregnant with our first daughter, Ella, is our first child, um, and we were right, you know, ready for her to come at any moment. Um, she came five days early, and she actually, the, the labor for the, for the birth started during our home group gathering and it was a it was a Tuesday at around 7 p.m. 8 p.m. and you know we were exchanging prayer requests amongst the group and Anna sort of nudged me and was like it's starting and you know we've we've been coached over the over the course of months to you know with the first kid like yeah yeah sure labor's starting but it's going to take forever so just ignore it basically as long as you can and so she did while kind of timing them on her phone, the contractions. And, you know, we said goodbye to our home group. They all went home. And so here we are being like, is this real? You know, is this real labor? Is this going to produce a baby at the end? And um, basically the coach, you know, our doula said, just go to sleep. You know, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, like, it's going to take forever. It's your first kid. Just go to sleep. Try to get as much rest as you can. And so we did. And uh, Anna woke up, I don't know, maybe 2 a.m., and it was like, okay, this is, seems real, uh, painful. Uh, and we had a cat at the time, and she kind of sat with the cat, you know, while I was still sleeping. She didn't want to wake me up so I could kind of have enough energy to help her for the, for the long haul. Um, so she's sitting there, like, scratching our cat's back, like, kind of like, as it got worse and worse, just like digging her nails into the cat. But the cat was awesome. She provided great, um, you know, birthing support for the time that it was needed. And then, but eventually the pain became too much for her just to need the support of a cat. She needed a, a human being. And so she woke me up. It's probably 4 a.m. Said, get up. It's time for you to be awake because this is real and it hurts. Um, and so 4 a.m., we're, we're just like doing all the, the ways to get through the pain that we've been coached in. And, and we both will never forget. You know, we're in the living room of our apartment, 23rd in Madison, which kind of faces east. And you can kind of see a little bit of the Cascade Mountains uh, if you kind of put it, you know, get on your tippy toes to look. And we're, it's like 4.30, 5 a.m., and it's just rough. 
It's just rough. And as in the first kid, it usually takes like 24 hours. And this is 24 hours of pain. I'm glad she's not in the room right now. Maybe she's over there. But there came a moment, and we had a, we had a playlist going, you know, our labor playlist. Uh, and uh, 5.16 a.m. rolled around. 5.16 a.m. rolled around. And like I said, we face east. The sun rises in the east. And right at that moment, the sun just moved right over the mountain and went boom and just delivered a just laser beam of sunlight into our living room. And it like lit up Anna's face. And we both were just like, what just happened? And then the, the playlist was going. Cigaros came on. Like the most, the most epic Cigaros song. Cigaros is a band. Amazing band from Iceland. And it's like the culmination of one of their most epic tracks. And the sun just burst into the living room. And we both just started weeping. Because we got through the night. We got through the night. Ella was coming. We have hope. It's going to happen. You know? And we just couldn't control ourselves. We're just weeping with joy and peace, knowing that if we can get through the night, we can get through whatever is coming next. And that moment, I will never forget. And we were crying tears of hope because right at that moment, it felt like God kind of delivered hope into our lap. And that's what hope can do. It, that's the power of hope. In, in a time of darkness, in a time of, of clouds, hope can kind of be that beam of light that, that changes your perspective. So that's what we're looking at this morning, the hope that the advent of Jesus can provide. And, you know, typically we at Calvary here, we march through books of the Bible, and we really try to drill down deep into each passage of the week. But for the next four weeks, we're, we're kind of going to be skimming the surface of multiple passages per week to kind of uh, look at these themes from different lenses of Scripture. And so if you do have your Bible, you better be ready to flip those pages because we're going to be like covering 800 years of Scripture. So for today, let's be watchful how the hope of Jesus' coming provides that piercing beacon of light that is needed to break through the clouds and provide that much-needed dose of hope. All right, so we're going to start in Psalm 42. So go ahead and turn there to Psalm 42. Psalms is in the middle of your Bible. And by the way, we're going to be doing a lot of Scripture reading too, so um, buckle up. All right, Psalm 42. We're going to also read uh, Psalm 43 because they're um, technically one psalm um, connected. So here we go, starting in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts of praise and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that your word would provide hope this morning as we reflect on on the need for hope, on the longing for hope, and how you have promised and fulfilled it. Uh, We want to experience it. We want to to know it, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. I pray that your word would do what it was created to do by your Holy Spirit so that we can worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so this psalm, this dual psalm, 42 to 43, it's a psalm of lament, and it's dealing with despair. You know, the psalmist here is longing deeply. And just as, a, as almost a shout-out or a, a preview, we're going to return to this psalm in a few months when we walk through some of the psalms of lament uh, during the season of Lent um, next year. But this, this psalmist is longing deeply. If you look back at verse 1, he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? This is a person who who longs, who who misses God's presence. You know, first he is longing for the presence of God. Simply that, the presence of God. And one of the the most difficult things for this person is that he's tasted it before and he can't taste it right now. If you look at verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. You know, he, 
He's experiencing despair and that longing for God's presence while remembering, I used to, I used to know it. I, I used to know this presence. I've experienced it before and I want to taste it again. So he's longing for the presence of God. And secondly, he's longing for the kingdom of God, the rule of God, God's intervention as he is in the midst of unjust and unrighteous people and rulers. You know, over there in 43 verse 1, he says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. He's, he's in this right state of longing desperately for the presence of God and the kingdom of God. So where does he turn? You know, what is his strategy for overcoming this bout of despair? And if you, you may have noticed in this dual psalm, there, there's basically a chorus. You know, he repeats the same refrain three times in verses 5 and 11 of chapter 42, and then in verse 5 of chapter 43, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And then he sort of preaches to his own soul and says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And he, he repeats that chorus three times. So he basically preaches to himself. You know, he, he's, he's talking about and to God, but he's also preaching hope to himself. He turns his, his exhortation inward and says, what are you doing? Why are you downcast? Hope in God. Just do it. <laughs> hope in God, for I shall praise him. And then he doesn't just preach hope to himself. Secondly, he prays for God to send out your light and your truth. In verse 3 of chapter 43. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. So he's not just preaching hope to himself. He's praying for God to send light, truth to, to clear away the darkness. You know, he doesn't just wait for this emotion of hope to come. He declares hope to himself based on God's character. You know, uh, he calls him my salvation. This is the God he's praying to. This is the God he's praying about. He is in despair. There's no question. But this is the God that he's being despairing to and with and about. So he declares hope to himself based on God's character and past acts. And he asks God to send light. You know, please send me something to break through this fog that I'm in. So the psalmist here, he's providing a snapshot of the longing that, we, that all of us have to some degree. You know, he has an appetite, a longing for the presence and the advent of the kingdom of God. And we all have some kind of appetite for this. Whether you're religious, secular, don't believe in God, it doesn't matter where you stand in your beliefs, your worldview, we all have a longing for hope. That's a pretty standard human thing. We all want a future that is better than the present or the past. We all do. And we all place our hope in things that we think will bring us a better future 
than the present. Now, this psalmist has that same longing. And it's his view that it's going to come from both the presence and the kingdom of God. So, we have this longing. Where do we turn next? We'll look at promise. You know, does, does our longing for hope find an answer in the promises of God in his word? All right, it's time to do the f- page flip. You can leave this behind. Don't you have to keep your finger in it? Uh, go ahead and flip over to Isaiah. It's only like two or three books to the right. Uh, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 7. And we'll bounce in chapter 7 and then hit up chapter 9. All right. Looking at chapter 7 of Isaiah, verse 14, Isaiah writes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Just pause there. That's a big deal. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, keep that in your mind. Jump over to chapter 9. We're going to read a little bit of a bigger passage in chapter 9, starting in verse 2. Isaiah writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we've looked at the longing for hope, the longing for the presence, the longing for the kingdom of God, and we saw that the psalmist invited God's light to break through the darkness. And here we see it promised. In verse 2 of chapter 9, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light shined. So we find light promised. And then the presence. If we, if we look back at chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So we find the promise of God's presence. And then lastly, in verses uh, 6 and 7 of chapter 9, we find the kingdom of God promised. The government shall be upon this child's shoulder. 
No, he will be called all these names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and with righteousness. So here we find this this longing that that the psalmist had for, for hope of the presence of God and the kingdom of God. And he asks for light to come. Is, it's all here. And it's all wrapped up in one person. One promised child. A child who was to be born of a virgin. That's impossible. That is impossible. We know that, right? Virgins can't have kids. But one did. One time. And not only that, but he would come from the royal line of David and who would be called many things, including mighty God. Now, this is a a human being born, but will be called mighty God. This is no ordinary human being. You know, these passages in 7 and 9 and others like them span the entire Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi. These prophecies, they lay out the, the in detail, the person, the life, the ministry, the future kingdom of the Messiah. That's Hebrew, or Christ in Greek. This hope of Messiah started out vague. It started out small. It started out veiled. In Genesis 3, immediately after Adam and Eve messed up. God says, the seed or offspring of the woman will crush the snake's head while at the same time his heel will be bruised by that snake. Now that's a veiled veiled prophecy of what Jesus would accomplish in crushing Satan's head. But But the promises, the prophecies would become more detailed, more specific predicting where the Messiah would be born in Micah 5-2 in Bethlehem, predicting the kind of brutal death that he would experience in Isaiah 53. There are at least 300 of these kinds of prophecies, allusions, types, uh, pushing and pointing forward to this promised child, this promised king of the line of David whose, whose kingdom would last forever. And so we see this longing for hope is met with a promise. Our longing finds a friend in the promises of God. And look at God's sponsoring of this promise in in, uh, 9 verse 7 of Isaiah. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's as good as done. Because God wants it to be done. And he will do it. And so if we fast forward 700 years, we will discover the fulfillment. You know, we've looked at the longing, and here's the promise, and does it correspond to a fulfilled promise? Is this a God that keeps his promises? It's worth asking. So now we'll turn to the fulfillment. Uh, Go ahead and leave Isaiah behind. Turn all the way to the book of John in the New Testament. It's the fourth gospel. The New Testament starts with Matthew. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. 
and we'll be in chapter 1. And this is 700 years after Isaiah penned those words about the light dawning. All right, let's read. Uh, Let's read starting in verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 14. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we looked at the longing for hope, the longing for the presence and kingdom of God. We saw the promises of that hope coming, and here we have the fulfillment. This light that way back in Psalm 42, the psalmist says, God, send your light and your truth. And here we have it. The light that God promised through Isaiah, it came on Christmas over 2,000 years ago, in the person of Jesus. The psalmist said, send out your light and your truth. And John says, verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus Christ, a real historical human being, was born to the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem in the first century. He was Emmanuel, God with us. You know, It says in verse 14 of John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word means he tabernacled among us. And that points us back to the Old Testament. Before there was a temple, before there was a brick and mortar uh, God place, there was a pop-up shop, the tabernacle. And that's who Jesus became. He became God's presence on earth. He dwelt among us. Jesus, as a chapter later in John 1, says, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he opens up the opportunity to experience this withness. God with us. This presence of God. The closeness, the nearness, the intimacy that we are all longing for by becoming God's adopted children. You know, that's, that's the fulfillment of longing for God's presence and kingdom. It is to become a child of God. You know, we have reason to hope. We have a good reason to hope. 
because our longing has been met with a promise which Jesus has fulfilled. The entire Old Testament is fulfilled in this one person. From that veiled mention in Genesis 3 to God promising Abraham that his descendants will be a blessing to all nations. That Moses predicting that another prophet would eventually arise like him. That God promising David that one of his descendants would rule and reign forever. To Isaiah pronouncing that the suffering servant would be beaten so badly that you wouldn't be able to recognize him for how badly he was beaten. That he would be buried. And yet that same servant that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 53, he would live again. He would live again to see those that he justified, which is us. So we long for it. God promised it. Jesus fulfilled it. And so how do we respond to such good news of hope? We respond with belief and worship. Let's, this is our last turning, okay? I know your thumbs are getting tired. Uh, turn over to 1 Peter. It's actually toward the end of your Bible. 1 Peter. It's right before all the books of John. 1, 2, 3, John, and then Jude and Revelation. So 1 Peter chapter 1. You know, what is our, what is our response to, to this trajectory of longing and promise and fulfillment? Let's, let's read, in, starting in verse 3 through, through verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter just overflows here. This is a letter written to Christians across the region of the first century church who were all being persecuted, who were all experiencing pain and suffering because of their beliefs in Jesus Christ. And he says he, he can't help but recommend them to worship and to just be in awe of the fulfilled promises of God. Because through Jesus we have been born again, he says, to a living hope. A living hope. 
Jesus fulfills our longing for both the presence of God and the kingdom of God. So why should we hope? What basis do we have for hope? And it's not because we feel hopeful. It's not an emotional status. But as Peter says, it's because Jesus has been raised from the dead. That happened. You know, Paul says, um, if you say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's, that being, his being raised from the dead, it's not just a, a theoretical reality, like, a, yeah, 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 I think his resurrection was sort of, you know, kind of a, an analogy for, for, no, it happened. He was dead. He was a human being, killed, executed on a Roman cross that doesn't fail to kill. But then three days later, God resurrected him and gave him a new body, an immortal body. In my 10-year career as an oncology nurse, I've heard of and seen countless people die for real because cancer killed them. All of us, family, everyone who has lived up to this point in centuries past are all dead. No one person has been risen from the dead permanently except for this one, Jesus Christ. And it was born witness by eyewitness accounts written down for us. You know, Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. How do we know that he is resurrected? Because of eyewitness testimony. It's not just a a good feeling. It's not just a, oh yeah, I love Christianity and what it teaches. You know, it teaches us to be a better person and it's awesome. No, this is a real flesh and blood good news reality that happened in history. That is the gospel. And so, Peter says it's because he has been raised from the dead that we have real, solid reason to hope. That we have an unfading, undefiled, imperishable inheritance. And one thing that that refers to is our new bodies that will come. Mm -hmm. That Paul says in another place that the perishable will be raised imperishable. That, Im- that mortality will put on immortality. It's a big deal. And that's a good reason to hope. Some people are putting their hopes in, um, in technology, in, in politics, in, in uh, uh, power. But none of it will survive. None of it will last. This is a solid hope, and it's offered to us. A living hope. What does that even mean? A living hope. It's a hope that continues to provide hope. It's a hope that provides that uh, 5 a.m. dawn-piercing light day in and day out, over and over again. The hope of eternity with Jesus Christ It keeps on giving. It's a living hope. This hope that we have for the resurrection of our bodies, and not to mention the cleansing and the forgiveness that we have now. It's the living hope that we have 
that provides that cloud-busting breakthrough. And we can preach that to ourselves. We can, like the psalmist, say to ourselves, hope in God, soul. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I want to read you guys a quote. It'll be up on the screen if you have it. Yeah, it's long. You might not be able to read that. Uh, But listen, uh, so Henry Nouwen, uh, who we named our son Henry after, he's a Christian writer, and and he he, he says this. Christian community is the place where we keep the flame of hope alive among us and take it seriously so that it can grow and become stronger in us. In this way, we can live with courage, trusting that there is a spiritual power in us when we are together that allows us to live in this world without surrendering to the powerful forces constantly seducing us toward despair. That is how we dare to say that God is a God of love, even when we see hatred all around us. That is why we can claim that God is a God of life, even when we see death and destruction and agony all around us. We say it together. We affirm it in each other, waiting together, nurturing what has already begun, expecting its fulfillment. That, Henry Nouwen says, is the meaning of marriage, friendship, community, and the Christian life. You know, Peter says to us, as a church who, have, who none of us have seen Jesus in person, in verse 8, these Christians that Peter was writing to, said, he says, you have not seen him, and you can't see him now, yet you love him, and you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, we live here now in a time of both fulfilled promises and unfulfilled longings. You know, we are in a time of all four of these lenses, the longing, the promise, the fulfillment, and the worship. It's all mixed together for us because we're in this already not yet time. You know, God's mercy and his grace has, has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And yet the kingdom of God has not been consummated in its entirety. We are still in a period of longing. But that's why we have hope, right? And hope won't last forever because it doesn't need to last forever. It only needs to last until that day comes. And we have it. We have hope right now until that day comes. Together, we can keep the flame of hope alive among us. We can trust in a trustworthy God who hears our longings, who answers those longings with his promises, and fulfills those same promises. A God who is worthy of our worship. A God of hope. Perhaps you need some hope today. With with Jesus, we have ample reason to hope. You know, if you're in a season of, of despair or in, of doubting right now, of, of reckoning, of, of like post-pandemic, just like, I'm not even sure anymore, whether it's about your faith or, or your vocation or your, your relationships, your, your, wherever you're at, you know, you're in good company. The whole world is in this place of like reckoning with what's real, what's important, um, what direction you want to go, 
what kind of person you want to be, what kind of legacy you want to leave. Wherever you are in this season of Advent, in this season of, of preparing for the holidays and things like that, invite God into it, I encourage you. You know, just like this psalmist does here, God can handle your processing of your doubts, of, of your fears, of your anxieties, of your anger, even with him. He can handle it. We saw earlier in Psalm 68, he's, he's, he can handle it. He's very powerful. <laughs> he, he can handle your emotions. He can handle what you're dealing with. He wants to handle it. He wants to hear you because he wants you, all of you. And it's more than a fair trade because he's given us all of himself. So we can hope in that kind of a God. Let's pray.